ultimately this is spiritual work. You know, what we're talking about is spiritual work. Your fulfillment doesn't come from the material plane. You know, it makes life easier and it can enhance in a lot of ways, but ultimately who you are as a being is what's going to lead to your fulfillment. And the worst thing that I see in all of these amazing people that I get to work with one-on-one -on -one who give me that privilege, they're freaking awesome. They're, they're freaking amazing people and they are so filled with self-doubt around their value. I really believe that your number one job in this lifetime is to actually be who you are. I don't believe there's any such thing as an ordinary person, really. I just don't. There, there isn't. You know, everyone has a story. Everyone has a thing that they're here to do. Some people's purpose is to be an amazing human being. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Mackie Musavi. Mackie is an executive coach, author, speaker, and certified genetic counselor. Mackie earned a master's degree in genetic counseling from the University of Minnesota. Before starting her own business, she spent 12 years working at Cerner Corporation in a variety of positions, including a senior strategist for genomics. She is the author of the book, The High Achiever's Guide, Transform Your Success Mindset and Begin the Quest to Fulfillment. You can learn more about Mackie at MackieMosavi.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Mackie. Mackie, welcome to the corporate couch today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. One thing I love about doing these podcasts is I talk to people that are much smarter than me and you're definitely in that category. So we'll get into, you know, you have patents, you're a, you're a certified genetic counselor, you, you have a master's in genetic uh, counseling. So we're going to talk about all that. So yeah, very excited. So thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I always like to start with a kind of a fun question. Mackie, people that know you, you know, either a little bit or fairly well, what would one thing about you surprise them? You know, I think probably for people who know me well, they know I'm I'm really into it. But when I was in college, I had this point where I had to make a decision, you know, which way am I going to go? And And I ended up in the sciences, which has been great. But I'm, I'm really politically tuned in. Like I almost became a political science major and, and I'm like really focused on that kind of thing. And social justice is really important to me. And it's one of those places where I can get super fired up. And I know that's not shocking to you. We just had a little chat about language, but, um, that, that type of topic, which really feels like it's separate, maybe in a lot of ways from the things that I'm known for is something that just really sparks some serious activation energy in me. 
so you grew up in uh, Manhattan, and and we're talking about the Little Apple. In That's right. Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, what what was uh, what did you love doing growing up as a kid? You know, I'm Gen X, so uh, for those people who can relate to that your parents don't ever really know where you're at. And I would say one of the best things about growing up in a town like Manhattan was it's grown quite a bit, but it's college town. And so it felt really safe. And we were out at all hours of the day and night, whenever school wasn't in session doing God knows what, but just really having that kind of free reign and feeling really safe was great. And I would say the other piece that was really fun about growing up there was that because it is a college town, there was actually quite a bit of diversity. So even though you're like, oh, Manhattan, Kansas, wow, whatever, mm-hmm. um, because of the university and also because of the military base, which is really nearby. I don't know if a lot of people know that about Manhattan, but Fort Riley, which is the first infantry division of the army, is about 20 minutes from town. So we have a real interesting mix of things. But I would say that that's a big part of it, just feeling really safe and um being able to run around and do things not having to worry about a whole lot was a really good time a really fun thing about being there what was your aspiration as a child like when i you know when you're going to be an adult i wanted to be this what was this for you oh such a great question you know i think i went through those phases that a lot of kids do they want to be like a firefighter or whatever um I would say actually, because of what I referenced earlier in terms of my interest in like politics and social justice, a law was something that I thought I might pursue becoming a lawyer. And um, I don't know why that didn't, it just didn't stick the way that my interest in science stuck. And I think part of that was probably a little bit cultural, you know, from my parents' perspective and their cultural perspective, the sciences are a really good, solid thing to be, you know, attached to that gives you lots of opportunities. And um, there was just this kind of pull between what feels like two very different things. But I think law, being a lawyer, that was something that I was really interested in. I was in debate in high school. That definitely fueled that interest as well. Sure. I know your parents immigrated from Iran. Did you, you, you did also, right? No, I was born in Manhattan. Okay. You were. Okay. Yeah. I went to Manhattan College in the Bronx, so there, you, so there you go. There's our, there's <laughs> a little time. bit of a different experience. <laughs> uh, so uh, you stay local, go to K State in Manhattan. Um, so what was the pull? You majored in biology. Was that your, you know, from freshman year on? That was your path, or did you change majors? No, I never changed. I majored in biology, but you know, once again, back to the social justice piece, I did get a minor in women's studies. So that was kind of how I indulged that, that part of my brain um, and things that were interesting to me from a different perspective. I never changed. I never wavered. I was really fortunate because Manhattan High is such an amazing high school. I actually think it's ranked nationally um, in terms of public edu- high school educations. And because of the influence of the academics nearby, I was able to take so many classes that you just don't even hear about in high school. So in high school, I was able to take human genetics. I took cell biology. I took human anatomy. And I think that having that foundation really early as an adolescent just showed me that this is the path I want to be on. So I I felt like I had enough exposure to it beforehand that I was just like, this is the thing and this is what I'm doing. Wow. That's, yeah, that's phenomenal. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting. It's about half and half of my guests, which have been you know, fifty plus at this point. That you know, some of them are just like you. They have that path and they take it. Others, like yeah, 
wanted to be in law school and then, uh, you know, I, you know, decided to go into marketing. <laughs> right. That type of thing. Or uh, going to nursing and, you know, not saying I, I didn't do well enough academically because I was partying. So I decided to go into something else. So, yeah, it's just very interesting. And then so you graduate uh, from K-State, go Wildcats. Mm -hmm. um, then did you go right to the University of Minnesota for your master's? No, I actually took a year off. I worked at KU Medical Center for a year as a research assistant, and that was the period of time where I started to look around at genetic counseling programs. Interestingly enough, it's still obscure enough that some people to even today don't know what it is. One of my uh, professors at K-State, who was my genetics professor, who I was like, hey, this person's going to know what I should do, had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, oh, genetic counseling, what, is the, you know, what are you talking about? I have no idea. And so I had to do a whole bunch of research to figure out where I could even go. And it's not the kind of degree that you can get just anywhere. There's only a, num a certain number of schools that, that have that. And so I needed that year off to kind of do some research and figure out where do I want to apply? Where do I want to end up? And um, what's really interesting is, you know, usually it makes sense, but genetic counseling is something you can only study if there's like an, a medical school, basically at that school, because there's so many things that you need to be exposed to. And um, my class uh, that, of genetic counseling at the University of Minnesota, there were seven of us. And that's kind of the typical size is, you know, le definitely less than 10. The, the biggest program I know of is Sarah Lawrence in New York, which is the original genetic counseling program, which has like 20 to 30 or something like that, but wow. real small class size. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, you, it's like a little uh, sorority fraternity, you know, you, you, you yeah. bond for the time you're there, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you come out with your master's degree in genetic counseling from University mm -hmm. of Minnesota. So how did you end up at, did you go right to Cerner at that point? And if you did, how did you get that job? No, I did not. So the first job I got right out of graduate school was actually in Texas. Um, and I moved to Dallas, my, my husband now, but at the time not yet was in graduate school at the university of Texas at Dallas. So I went down there. He wasn't quite done yet. I got a job doing genetic counseling and to be perfectly transparent, it was just such a terrible fit. I, the, the good old boy structure of medicine in Texas was super off-putting to me. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. And I, there's this challenge with being a genetic counselor because you don't have a PhD, you're not a doctor, but you really are the expert in terms of genetics and, and how to apply it to patient care but you don't necessarily get the same respect of people at that level. And I'm not saying that's across the board, but that was certainly the experience that I had there. And after doing that for a while, I thought, you know, this really isn't for me. And I actually just don't think that Texas is for me. So if we're going to make a change, if I'm going to make a career change, I think we should make a location change as well. And because my husband and I both went to K-State, we had lots of friends in the Kansas City area and we thought, let's just go there. And it is hard to find jobs in genetic counseling. There's just only so many of them. I didn't find one here in Kansas City, even though I had a, a lot of people in that community that I was in touch with, but I did take a job at KU Medical Center in the Cancer Information Service for a little bit. So I was there before I ended up being at Cerner. And then what led you to Cerner and how did you get that position? So one of the things that I always knew for, about myself was that I pursued genetic counseling because I really love the science of genetics and knew I didn't want to do research. I liked the people aspect of being able to to 
see patients. But it was also kind of around the time that people really started talking about the possibility of personalized medicine. And I thought it would be really cool to take the knowledge that I had and apply it in a very different way. So interestingly enough, I, I submitted my resume to Cerner just sort of generically and got interviewed for a marketing intelligence position, which I thought was really fascinating. I really don't know like how those dots connected from looking right. at my background. But when I was in that interview, the person said to me, you know, I'm really surprised you're not talking to the people here who are doing these things with genetics. And I was like, well, I had no idea there was anyone there who was doing something with genetics. Right. And so they said, yeah, you know, we can't really like tell you who to contact, but if you do a Google search, you know, you'll probably come up with something. So I did. And I did find the person at Cerner who was building software to support labs that did genetic testing. And I thought, oh, that would be a really cool way to apply this knowledge. And so I actually cold contacted him. I sent him an email and said, this is who I am. This is what I know. I feel like I could be a, a benefit, you know, to what you're doing. And nine months later, they had uh, created a position for me. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I love the strategy of actually interviewing for jobs that you're not perfect for. And mm -hmm. if it's a good company and see, because, and that's one of the main reasons you know, what you experienced, because they brought you to something different yeah. that was better suited for you. So a lot of, a lot of people don't do that, but I think that's uh, phenomenal that it ended uh, that it ended that way. So that was good that you started there. So uh, it was about the, I would say the heyday of Cerner, kind of the, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of the early stages. I worked for Sprint in the early days of long distance. I worked for, I was employee 55 at Sprint PCS. So that's you know, like the go-go days, right? So it's, it's really fun. But what, what is some of your fond memories of your early years there at Cerner? I definitely, you're right. I mean, I, it felt like I entered that, that atmosphere at exactly the right time. Um, one of the things that really worked for me personally was that I really like to be involved. I don't, I'm not a, a linear person. I don't like to just be working on one thing and to put my head down and do that one thing. And being a person, you know, one of only a couple people at the company who had the knowledge that I had, you know, the other one being the man that hired me, cause you know, that, that was kind of his baby was there were so many opportunities where there wasn't a person who you could just slot into a position to do a particular thing. So for instance, you know, I was there to really help strategize around the software, what it needed to do, working as a liaison with the engineering team and helping them understand that. So they knew what to build. But the other really big piece of it was for the sales team, they don't, you know, genetics has its own language. I mean, there's like no other way to put it. It's very esoteric. It's hard for somebody who doesn't have that background to go in and have a meaningful conversation with a person that's interested in what can this do and not be able to speak the language. So it gave me the opportunity, well, I can go on these sales trips and I can go talk to these clients or I can be on sales calls. And then I can work, I got to work with a marketing team and saying, you know, this is the way to, that to represent what this software can do. And here are the key points. Being able to present to clients who are coming into Cerner to talk to them about what we were doing on that kind of um, leading edge of being able to incorporate genetics into making medical decisions. All of those things I got to do because I got there when I did. And we were a pretty small team, small but mighty. And it was just Hey, you want to do this? And and I'm always up for that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, let me stretch myself in these different ways. So there was so much autonomy in some ways to make decisions about 
I want to be involved in this, or I want to be involved in this. And I had a lot of leeway to do that. You know, very rarely was I told, no, you can't do that. You know, it was always like, yeah, sure. Go help so-and-so or go on this trip or do whatever. And that really helped to develop my sense of what it meant to be part of a business that does that kind of work overall, not just as a subject matter expert, but more broadly. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my experience in, in, in startups for essentially is that, yeah, you, you get to do a lot of things and you kind of pave your own way, but you even had carte blanche probably because you're, you were such in a niche, uh, mm-hmm. uh, subject and, and, and expertise. So that that's phenomenal. Uh, what would you say was your career highlight at Cerner? I would say for me, you know, it wasn't any one occurrence, but I would say the highlight of of my entire experience is that I could not be doing what I do now if I had not been there and had the experience that I had. And I think a lot of people say this about the companies they work in, but there's just the people who were there at the time, just phenomenally intelligent smart, um, driven, visionary types of people that I got to meet. You know, I don't know that there are that many places where you really get to be exposed to the caliber of people that that I got to work with, you know, on a regular basis. That was definitely a highlight. And then I would say the overall experience was one that really set me up to do what I'm doing now. The challenging part was that when the transition for me personally occurred where I really recognized that I wasn't in the right space anymore. A lot of that experience that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, it was not necessarily specific to where I was at the time. It was not specific to that company. It is an, an, it's a problem in our corporate structures in this country and maybe even around the world that ultimately drove me out the door. Um, So very grateful for my time there, the people, the experience, Lots of great things came from it, but ultimately there, there was a reason why I couldn't stay. Yeah, actually, I, you wrote the High Achievers Guide book, Transform Your Success uh, Mindset and Begin the Quest for Fulfillment. So I, lo- I love the title and um, I have started reading it. So we're going to get a little, we're going to definitely talk about that book. But what, so at what point, I mean, you were there th- about 13 years at CERN, right? you know, when did you first start to get the inkling that you probably need to move on and do something else? You know, it's almost crazy to say this, um, but I think it was about halfway through that 13 years that I started to sense that it wasn't a long-term prospect. Um but I really didn't know what to do with that at the time. And I also kept thinking like, I just need to give it a chance and I need to try some different things. It's just, for me, I thought perhaps what the issue was, was that I had just been in that one space for too long and what I really needed was a change. And so around that time, you know, I made a transition to a different role. Again, great learning experience, but I've had the sense from the very beginning, this is not going to be a long-term prospect. And and even the the person who gave me that opportunity, who I had a ton of respect for, recognized that as well. He said, you know, this might be an 18 to 24 month thing for you, but at least it gives you the opportunity to like, go learn something else. And I'm happy to support that, which was wonderful of him. Uh, So I, I did that and I did move on about a year and a half after that to something else and then to something else. And, um, it was when I was in that, well, it kind of no matter where I go, that sense that I'm not in the right place persists, right? So it, that's not the answer. The answer is not just a new opportunity within the same um, 
the same organization. And when I finally got to the point where I thought I might need to leave and I started to think about, do I need to get a job was when I had a real big pause um, internally where I thought, you know, getting another job in another place is going to end up being the same experience. I'm probably going to be okay for about six to 18 months. And then I'm going to feel this itch again, and it's going to be time to move on. So I need to really think about what am I doing and not just look at it through the lens of I'm going to go get a job with a nice title and a, and a nice salary and everything's going to be fine. Because I think I had already started to see like, that's, that's not true. That, that paradigm of success that we follow, which is, you know, check all the boxes, do all the things, be really driven, get the title, get the money. I, I had all of that. And it didn't, it didn't matter at all. You know, I got to the point where I recognized that my misery was actually at, at a, a super high level, despite those things. And that's when I knew, okay, you just got to take a break and really figure out what's, what's going on and what comes next. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you, uh, you know, again, we'll talk about the, uh, your book more, but I mean, there were at least two times where I, I was just, well, probably three times, <laughs> three different companies that I was just miserable. I mean, I, you know, when a friend of mine, you know, we were having coffee and he says, why do you stay? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, I yeah, I, you know, you know, it's, it's, I'm a grinder. Like I, I just grind it out and there's, you know, financial obligations, you're taking care of your family. So it's, it's just very interesting. Um, but um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But so uh, you you leave after 13 years, you're in this niche, you know, place, you know, where, where your expertise is very uh, unique. And do you go right into kind of the coaching realm? You know, uh, what what did you do when you walked out of the uh, yeah. headquarters in 17? Yeah. Uh... Uh, it was actually a really interesting experience. So I left in June of 2017 and I thought this is going to be so great because I'm going to get the summer with my kids and I haven't had a summer off since I was in, you know, a student and, oh, it's going to be awesome. Right. Couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> and it, it just, I, it was an absolute, you said it's okay to swear on this show. So I'm going to, it was a mind fuck. You know, I'm yeah. sitting here like my count, no one's telling me where to be, where to go, what to talk about, you know, right. what to do. So even though I had a concept, obviously of what I was leaving to do, I needed a lot of unwinding and I did not appreciate that ahead of time. And it makes sense. You know, anything you do for years at a time, when you walk away from it, it's not actually this very simple transition where suddenly you're just super chill because that responsibility has changed. And I, I always tell my clients now, because, you know, quite a few of the people I work with are, are making a decision to do something different and to, to make a change, whether it's to go to a new company or to do their own thing. And, um, I tell them you need to give yourself time, you know, don't do any of this, this BS that we tend to do in the working world, which is like, I might take a day off or I'm going to end here on Friday and I'm going to start on Monday. Do not do that. You know, you do not need to do that. It's not in your best interest to do that. So what I did first was um, gave my brain some time to depressurize and kind of reacclimate to being in a different space mentally. And then I had to start strategizing about what, how am I going to let people know what I do? Because to your point, the network I had built to that point was not the network that I was targeting for this new work. So I didn't have the right network at all. You know, I just didn't. I, I met with 
tons of people. That was one of the first things I did to let them know, here's who I am. Here's what I do. And then the other thing I decided I needed to do very early on was start speaking, even if it was like for free into smaller groups. And that my very first speaking engagement was for Central Exchange. Uh, and it was that fall. So within a few months, I had presented for the first time and I ended up presenting for them probably no less than 12 times over the next couple of years and started getting invited. Well, at that very first speaking engagement, that led to an opportunity to go speak somewhere else. And that led to a six month contract. So, you know, it was like, I could see very clearly that being in front of people was going to be really key to the early stages of, of doing something new. So when did you formulate, like, obviously you're not talking about genetic counseling to the central exchange group, right? So what, I mean, when did you formulate all that and what, what did you, you know, when you first started speaking, what was it, what we were talking about? Yeah. So you, you referenced my book and you know, the, the, that really describes the process that I went through personally to decide how, how do I get out of this? You know, how do I get out of this? What? should be like success that looks really great on paper, but it's just not translating for me personally. And when I had that recognition, you know, a new job's not going to be the answer. I went on this very deep personal development journey and, um, you know, with genetic counseling, obviously there's a counseling component there. So there's a little bit of awareness around those types of issues from a psychology perspective. I'd also been to therapy, which I'm really transparent about as a, as a young, as a young adolescent and adult, and I read the the book, The Power of the Subconscious Mind when I was in high school. And so I had, you know, a, some foundation for what do, I, what do I need to be looking at and what do I need to identify as one of my key problems? And one of the the pieces for me that was really eye-opening because I we just don't take the time to think about why are we where we are and do I fundamentally need to change something about the way that I see myself or the world? And the recognition for me was that because of the way that my childhood transpired, I very early on had to seek validation, recognition, and affirmation from adults outside of my family. And one of the easiest ways to do that was to become a really good student. Because then whatever I wasn't getting at home in terms of positive attention, I was getting from other adults. And I needed that at the time, it was a coping mechanism that served me. It was giving me something that I wasn't getting otherwise. But what I didn't recognize until I got to that point in my career was I'm always seeking validation. And so I'm showing up in these ways that are about what they want me to do and what expectations are from the outside and never about what I would do or what I personally even want, which I couldn't answer at the time. I had no idea what I wanted. It wasn't accessible to me because I was spending most of my time doing what I didn't want to do. And as I was doing this process for myself, I recognized, you know, when I look around myself in in my professional environment, I would say 80% of people probably feel the same way I do. And why do we tolerate that? Why? You know, the science part of me is always asking why. That was when I recognized there are other people who are in these similar places where they feel really trapped by their circumstances, even though they look like they're good circumstances from the outside, they don't know how to get out of it. And I want to help people figure that out for themselves. So that's what I was speaking on. And that's what the book is about, right? That's about the message that as a type A high achieving person, you're super driven by certain things that we all share in common from a conditioning perspective. And a lot of those things aren't actually serving you as the individual. They're serving the system and they're serving, you know, um, the ascent that you're making from a career perspective, but they're not really aligned with you necessarily. And that 
process that I talk about, write about, speak about, do with people is that process of figuring out what's no longer serving you. What do you need to decondition? Where, how do you need to show up differently? And how can you be in alignment? What I love about your book is that you, you know, you talk about yourself and your process and, you know, it, and it never ends, right? You're, you're still in the process. You're still on the journey, but I mean, you're very transparent about your childhood and how, you know, and all the shit you had to deal with internally and, you know, family and, you know, and, 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 and other things that impacted your life, you know, growing up and through college and, and your professional life. So that I really think, you know, and I'm, I'm a big reader, you know, of uh, different uh, books. I, I, when I went to your Amazon page, I saw they compare your book to uh, the only one I had read that they compared it to was the, uh, uh, the motivation uh, manifesto. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I read that years ago, so I, I wasn't, uh, it didn't resonate with me. Yes, I would remember more of it, but I, your book is just, you know, and it's almost a workbook and um, to the extent, and, you know, I, I read somebody's review and said, oh, it's a quick read. Well, yeah, it's 200 and whatever pages, but it's, as you told me over coffee, it's, you know, you do have to do the work that you, you know, lay out. And I think that's, uh, and since you went through the process it's, it, yourself, I think it's phenomenal how you just, because uh, it always helps to know, you know, it, it's just more authentic, right? Because you're writing about yourself and, you know, basically saying, yeah, this is what I went through. This is all the shit that happened to me and my process and, and things like that. So um, why do you think, um, you, I mean, obviously, you know, kind of the age we're in and, um, you know, corporate America has been around, we'll say since the 50s, right, 50s, 60s, you know, kind of the industrial revolution, and we got into the, you know, the tech revolution. But, you know, companies, for the most part, are about the same, you know, they're slowly evolving. Uh, I think that pandemic has helped kind of have companies have more empathy for the employees. But why do you, do you I mean, can corporate America ever become a place where people can work and thrive? Um, what is your opinion about that? I, I believe it's possible, but the same way that you just really nicely framed, you know, yeah, maybe it's a quick read, but you really do have to do the work, which I'm a huge proponent of, right? Companies have to be willing to do the work. But one of the things that I've observed quite a bit, you know, back in my early days of, of doing this, when I first decided to be out on my own, I thought there's such a great opportunity for corporate consulting here because of what it can, how it can bring out the best in leadership to have this deep self-awareness around what's really aligned for them and how that can benefit the company. If people are allowed to show up authentically in a way that can actually serve everyone. But here's the problem. I have had multiple conversations with people who are in positions, whether they're in HR or other places, and they think, oh, you know, we should have you come in because we've got a group of people, they could really benefit from this message. Inevitably, what happens as we talk more is that the fear sets in, in those decision makers, and they'll say to me, like, you're going to come in, everyone's going to have this, this awakening, and they're going to decide they need to leave right? Or we're, we're afraid the outcome is they're going to decide they need to leave and they back off. And, and that right there is like a beautiful example of the problem. You know, if somebody coming in and quote unquote, waking up, 
your employee population means they jump ship, you have a problem. Right. <laughs> you know, you have a problem. And instead of thinking like, we need to know what that problem is in order to address it, they go, nah, we just want everyone to kind of keep their heads in the sand because we, it's more comfortable for us. And until that changes, you know, I can't tell you how many times personally for me as a corporate employee and what I've heard from other people is that they will get surveyed about culture and other things. And the, and it's all with the promise of we're going to take these results and we're going to, we're going to listen to you guys. We're going to do something with this, whatever you tell us and nothing ever happens. Nothing ever happens. Nothing ever changes because the magnitude of what is unveiled in those conversations is that then they don't know, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to fix it. Well, this is the way we've always done it. And they start to get really entrenched mm -hmm. in the same pieces of conditioning more systemically that I was talking about with type A people, how we become very conditioned to grind and hustle and check the boxes and mm -hmm. all those things that the cultures themselves have those elements as well. And they're very doubled down on them. So unless we get to the point where companies say, Hey, you're about to unearth some shit and we're here for it because we need to know what's there in order to address it it will not change. That has to be a part of it. So there are probably some companies out there, my guess would be they're smaller companies that are willing to do that because they feel like it's more personal. Have, they have more touch points with their employees. They probably care more because of that. And then you've got the big behemoth types of companies where like, well, you know, our stock's performing well, so, and we're making a lot of revenue. So obviously if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of, you know, to be all old school about it. it. There's just a real limitation in embracing change, I think, broadly at that level. And until that changes, even in the pandemic conversation, right? Like let everybody go home and work from there. And, and the productivity really didn't fall off. In fact, studies show people were more productive because they weren't having to commute and worry about all these other things. But because that company made an investment in real estate or something else, they want butts and seats, right? And they haven't learned anything from even right. having the real life experience. It's not even theoretical anymore. Right. So unless there's a willingness to embrace knowledge and learning, um, the, the, it won't change. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it, the companies that are really highly evolved, right? From a emotional intelligence, uh, empathy type of uh, mindset, they're the ones that would bring you in versus, you know, other companies. I was always amazed at people that, you know, if somebody left your team, they were, they, the, the, that person, no, you know, there were some managers that said, well, you know, they would not even talk to the person that was leaving their team. They were so, because they were so insecure about their own talent and they took it as an affront. I, I always had the mindset, look, I want people here on the team that want to work here. And if you want to leave, I'll help you leave. Like, I want you to be happy. I'm going to, if you want to go from being a market research person to a brand manager, I'm going to, here, talk to these people what, what being a brand manager is. And if that's where your passion is and where you need to go next, let's, let's, let me help you do that because you're happier. And I'm going to bring in somebody else that's happy being here. So let's, yeah, I just, yeah, it's, exactly. it's amazing um, about that, um, you know, the mindset, but I, I, you know, I love your take on it, but yeah, I mean, it's to get to where you're at, where companies are at today to evolving to a place where they're okay to let people go, because that's where the people want to do in terms of their life, right? 
and and they would have a stronger culture if if they did let let you know allow that right if they did bring you in because you want to make people happy and and the the vast majority or at least the majority in my opinion would be um of the employees that you would work with at a company they would also the majority would stay and be happier i think you know, mm -hmm. knowing that uh, the services you perform and 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 the thinking you know, that you, uh, the change of thinking, I think. Uh, yeah, and to your point, I think one of the things that we don't really recognize or think about very much is that there are plenty of people in leadership who don't have real uh, self confidence or a real sense of their own value, and so you and when you elevate leaders to positions where they have that responsibility for others, but it's not personally something that they've worked on for themselves. They're not really capable at functioning at the highest level to do the sorts of things that you're talking about. So mm -hmm. in your example, you're seeing this as like, this is an opportunity. Even if somebody needs to move on, it's an opportunity for someone new to come in. And it's, it's good for that person to go find what aligns for them. And at the same time as a leadership team, you can have this non-defensive stance around this just isn't a fit and it's it's not personal but if we're doing something on our end that's driving away smart talented people that we would love to retain we need to look at that but there are some leaders who are so insecure in their own position and and rocking the boat and and making tough decisions that they can't get there and that to me is one of the things that i saw personally and that i hear about all the time is this elevation of people to leadership positions because of things like, well, they've been here for a really long time, or we're going to ask them to step into something, even though they were a really good individual contributor and ask them to suddenly take on this big team. And that person isn't necessarily maybe ready for that. They may not be prepared to be ready for that appropriately. It may not be a good use of their skill set, right? This obsession with promoting from within can actually hurt companies a lot. And there's so many different considerations to think about. But, you know, again, if you're really ingrained in the way things have always been done, there's no opportunity for that. Right. And, and a lot of those individual contributors that they promote to uh, a leadership position, they, there's no safety net. They don't, they don't give them right. the tools to okay, exactly. now you're a manager, you know, mm -hmm. you, you're leading people, let's do some leadership development or, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's keep doing what you were doing, plus we're giving you people and that can be really overwhelming. And, and like you said, it's you're not equipping that person for success. Yeah. So, you, so your book was published in 2019. Uh, what was, um, how long did it take you to write it and what was your writing process? Uh, yeah, my timing was really great. <laughs> fall of 2019 before the world shut down. Right. Not, not my best, not my best timeline. Uh, so I really was surprised that it was, I wrote it and published it as soon as I did after leaving uh, my corporate job. I really thought it was going to be a further long-term kind of maybe a few years out, but sometimes the dominoes just fall the way they need to. So I knew I was going to write a book. And one of the things I did was just kind of do a draft outline and then every once in a while, I would kind of get this internal nudge, like, well, maybe you should kind of flesh it out a little bit more. So I signed up for this online course about how to write a nonfiction book proposal. That was amazing. So I, I kind of went a little bit further than I set it aside again, just thinking now's not the time. Then I got this email, the way the universe works is so interesting sometimes, that was about, it wasn't even the list, person's list that I was on. They were supporting somebody else's work and saying, hey, this person's putting on this 
tell us something about how to write your book. And I thought, well, that's awesome. Let me sign up for that. So I did. And I uh, ended up connecting with a guy who ran a business called Publishizer. And Publishizer was meant to be a platform for finding a publisher that was less daunting than the traditional methods of kind of sending out manuscripts and having to hire an agent. And I he had a great chat and he said, why don't you just send me what you have so far? So I did. And he's like, uh, you're like 90% of the way there. If you just do A, B, and C, then what we can do is host um, for 30 days, they put on their website, basically a book campaign to pre-sell as many copies of the book as possible. And however well you do with that kind of determines what size of publisher will look at your work. And so that's actually how I found my publisher was through that effort. That was to this day, probably one of the most difficult 30 days of my life was that, that book campaign. I, swear when it was over, I felt like I needed to sleep for a week, <laughs> uh, but I found a publisher and signed a contract. And I actually wrote the book in 10 weeks. Wow. Um, so it, it flowed very quickly, but I think it was because I had done so much pre-work right. and had such a strong sense of what I wanted to say. And then I had a deadline. And so those things yeah. combined, you know, I just, I got it done and in their hands for editing and, you know, the, the rest of the process. Yeah. So uh, that 10 week period, uh, how many days a week did you write and, uh, and for how long? I wrote five days a week. And what I decided to do was kind of, and I wasn't for you know sure exactly how long the book was going to be, but I went and did a little research and saw, you know, the average nonfiction book has, you know, so many thousands of words. If I were to divide that up into five days a week over 10 to 12 weeks, how many words a day do I need to get out and, and how long will that take me? Right. So the way I structured it was every single day, Monday through Friday, the first two hours of my morning were blocked for writing because I'm at my best in the morning and I had a word count I needed to hit. So um, if I hit it and I just crushed it that week on day four, I had all my words in for the week, I would take a day off and then, you know, get back to it. So that's how I did it. I love that. Um, I think you reference uh uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, The uh, Art of War. War of Art. The War of Art. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. And it's, you know, I, I love I love Stephen Pressfield. I think he's great. Mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite uh, fiction books is The uh, Bagger Vance, The Legend of Bagger mm -hmm. Vance. I love that book. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, you got to do the work, you know, get, you know, breakthrough, you know, just write, you know, mm -hmm. write. And that's what you did. So I love that. Yeah. Um, and I also, another great book on that topic, in case anyone's listening who wants to write a book is um, On Writing by Stephen King. Excellent memoir. He talks a lot about his journey as a writer and it was very similar advice to Stephen Pressfield. Like you yeah. just got to do it. You know, that's just, it just is. You can't let the resistance um, get in your way. I, I've heard of that book. I'm a big uh, Tim Ferriss uh, podcast mm -hmm. uh, fan. And he, he, he's the first one to turn me on to that on writing by Stephen King. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'd like to look at kind of things uh, that maybe other people wouldn't mention, but so I love the Oscar Wilde quote that you started the book with, never love anybody who th treats you like you're ordinary. So what, what was your thought behind that being the quote that starts the book? You know, one of the things that I think is kind of fun about what I do is I can show up and and relate, you know, I have that presence that works in corporate settings and is professional and all those things. And, and I talk a lot about success and 
business and all the, all the, all those topics. Uh, but ultimately this is spiritual work. You know, what we're talking about is spiritual work. Your fulfillment doesn't come from the material plane. You know, it makes life easier and it can enhance it in, in a lot of ways, but ultimately who you are as a being is what's going to lead to your fulfillment. And the worst thing that I see in all of these amazing people that I get to work with one-on-one -on -one who give me that privilege, they're freaking awesome. They're, they're freaking amazing people. And they are so filled with self-doubt around their value. Every single person who's here, they're, I really sincerely believe this. And I think I even end my book with this. I really believe that your number one job in this lifetime is to actually be who you are. And there's too many layers of bullshit on top of who you are that you've learned that hide that from everyone. And I don't believe there's any such thing as an ordinary person, really. I just don't. There, there isn't, you know, everyone has a story. Everyone has a thing that they're here to do. And I'm not even talking about like, oh, you know, you're supposed to channel your purpose into your career because I, frankly, I think that's kind of bullshit. I think if you can do that, that's great. Some people's purpose is to be an amazing human being. Like I think of this woman all the time. She was one of my um, daughter's daycare providers, amazing, incredible woman, loved children. Children loved her. She was working at a daycare, but you know what? Her purpose in life was to be that loving being. And she found a way to channel that, you know, and it may not be this big fancy title or this high paying salary, but she was in exactly the right place. And everyone has something like that. It doesn't have to be about the work that you do, but you've got to have that outlet in your life for channeling the essence of who you are, because that's what you're here to bring. You know, if, if Jeff never starts this podcast because he's too afraid that people are going to think he doesn't have anything interesting to say, then this opportunity to have great conversations that other people can benefit from never happen, right? And right. we don't think about the way that the little things we do impact people. Even just being kind to someone on a day when they're having a shit day, right. you know, and having the courage to say to somebody like, hey, I hope you have a good one, whatever. So I really think that it's that. It's that most people feel they're very diminished by what they believe are their limitations and don't appreciate that there's tremendous value there, not because of what they do, not because of what they earn, but just because they exist. And that's where I want people to be able to get from being in this grind of thinking you got to prove yourself all the time and that thinking that these trophies are the things that prove it to going to, I don't care what you think. I know I have value. I'm here to do what I'm here to do and let the people that see that come to you and let the people who don't see that move away from you. You mentioned in the introduction and talk about the word fine. So yeah. I was always, I used to say to people when people say, how are you doing? You know, close friends would say they're fine. I'm like, fine is not good. I mean, fine mm -hmm. is like, it's like you're 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 one step above survival, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I actually interviewed another um, coach, uh, author, uh, Lori Seitz, and she has a podcast. It's either a podcast or actually a workshop. It's it says "fuck fine." Uh -huh. I, mean, so, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you and Lori would get along very well. But yeah, I mean, I think we it, it's settling, right? I mean, uh, I mean that's part of it. And what I what I also love about your book is like 
you know, talking about toxic relationships, right? And I, you know, I, when I, when I reflected on mine professionally, um, I just thought, yeah, it was toxic. I mean, it was, you know, some of the cultures I worked in were toxic and, you know, you, you wonder why, like, and I know, you know, that's the journey I took and that's where I was supposed to be, but I think you're going to make people think about, you know, what, what am I here for? And I think, you know, your purpose is to be, be the best, you know, person you can be, right? Like that's your evolution, not your purpose would, and, and do things that you enjoy and, and love. Right. Yeah. Um, so in terms of your uh, business, um, you know, you do one-on-one -on -one coaching, corporate consulting, speaking, what, I mean, what, I mean, obviously you love doing all those things, but there's, do you like the one-on-one -on -one coaching better than the corporate or speaking or what is it? Yeah. Um, no, I wouldn't say that any one is necessarily better than the, than the other. Uh, what I see it as, you know, and including the book it is kind of levels of engagement, right? You can go anywhere from we'll never meet, but here's a book you can read if that will help you. Mm -hmm. um, I started my own podcast called Musings of a High Achiever, which I don't do interviews in that one. I just, it's me picking a topic and just kind of delving into it, kind of like we're doing here, topics yeah. that are relevant to people who are built this way. And I see those as um, something that could help people that I'll maybe never come into contact with, but it's just there for them to discover if it can be a value to them. And then, you know, there's the speaking, which is sort of, um, again, get a message out to maybe a group of people that needs to hear it. Maybe they'll take some of that back and, and do some different things at work or with their teams or whatever. Maybe they'll approach me about other opportunities. So there, it's almost like they're all layers. And of course, one-to-one -one coaching is the most intimate, you know, a way of engaging with a person. And um, what I really like is having kind of that, that width in what I do, because each one of those, I think, serves people in a different way. And it, it, gives me feedback and information in a way that I can decide how do I want to disseminate this or how will I use what I've learned to get better at what I'm doing or how I present that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. One thing I would really like to layer in that I haven't really done yet is um, having workshops for maybe small groups of people to kind of get that somewhere in between speaking and one-on-one -on -one coaching, right. To kind of catch right. the people who are ready for something in the middle. No, I think that's a great idea. I meant to ask you earlier. And so the, the high achievers guide, what, what's your definition of a high achiever? I, I know you talked earlier about type A personalities, but yeah. is, that, is that kind of the definition for you? Yeah, I think uh, high achievers are those people that really feel driven almost mm -hmm. to set and reach goals, to be accomplishment oriented, to be very checklist oriented, like loving to cross stuff off the list. You know, I, I, I still have that, you know, there, I, there's some things you're just not going to be able to change about yourself that are not necessarily bad. But to me, it's that, um, it's the highly conditioned state of thinking that your value lies in what you achieve. That is really what it comes down to. And there are some people who really don't have that, who are not the type A personalities. And it's great. You know, I've had really funny conversations with people who are the type A's. Like I remember one of the funny conversations I had with, with a gentleman who was retired from the military. And he said, as he was reading my book, he kept taking little bits and pieces to his wife and being like, see, this is why I'm like this, you know? And it was because she can't relate, you know, that's not how she is. And so I think it's for those people who feel 
that they're driven to be a value and to decide that the way they show their value is to keep achieving and being kind of in that hamster wheel of accomplishment. And it's not that achievement is fundamentally bad. It's that when you're achieving things to get something that you feel like is missing for you, that there's a challenge there. Right. Your achievements should be aligned. They should feel like they're very intentional. They can't just be, I'm checking this box because somebody else told me I need to do this uh, types of achievements. Cause that's where the lack of fulfillment really comes in. Yeah. I know you talk about in the book where, um, don't leave your job, you know, you start pursuing these other things while you still have a job, you know, kind of mm-hmm. transition slowly. But what about kind of the, uh, the primary wage earner that gets let go from a company, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so they're the primary wage earner for a family uh, or the single wage earner, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're supporting themselves and they get laid off. So you're now you're in a, you're in a no income situation what kind of what advice do you have for those people you know i think for those people it's very appropriate to do whatever you need to do to get through that period of time you know if you need to go get a job and it's not your highest you know (laughs) excitement that's okay you know do what you need to do because what will not happen is if you're in a very um, scary place emotionally you're not going to be able to do the work anyway right you're not your focus isn't going to be in the right space so For people who find themselves in that position, my advice is it's scary. It feels like a loss in that moment. It's nearly a guarantee that you'll be able to look back on it someday and see why it was necessary for it to end the way that it did. So having a little bit of faith before you have the hindsight that this is all happening, it'll become clear to me later why it's happening and do what you need to do in that moment. Because if you have a lot of emotional and, um, economic instability, it's going to be hard to really focus on doing the work anyway. So get the job and then, and then let your, just tell yourself, this doesn't have to be permanent, you know, because that's another thing that people who are built this way tend to do is they tend to be very catastrophic in their thinking and very black and white in their thinking. And there's a little bit of leftover, I think, uh, conditioning from generations that came before where you just went into a job and you stayed there till you retired and that was it. And there was a bunch of advice about you don't have too many things on your resume, makes you look unstable. I just don't believe we're in that time anymore. It's okay to take something and know that it's going to be just until you figure out what's going to be better. So do that. And then when you're in that space, give yourself some permission to bake in that time to do the work. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, what is your ideal one-on-one coaching client? What is what is their mindset? They're all very similar to each other, I would say, and a lot like I was back when I was, you know, starting this journey myself. But I, it's people who recognize I'm really unhappy, and I understand that the answer isn't just to go find another opportunity. They may not know what that means necessarily, but they do have a sense that. Maybe there's been some repetition, a cycle, a pattern. They keep finding themselves in the same place. Maybe they get something they're excited about. And then soon after they figure out this really isn't it. And so they're kind of tired of that churn and that internal sense of being unsettled and having a lot of self-doubt. And they're ready for that to, to shift, you know, and sometimes it's people who aren't necessarily planning on leaving their place of employment, but they are in a leadership position. And so they want to be in a better space personally to lead. Um, and other times it's people who their jobs did end. And so they do have some time to do this work because 
they had a severance or whatever. And they're like, well, you know, I might as well take advantage of this opportunity to not just go and repeat the same cycle and do something else. So anytime you find yourself at a place where you, you feel like you're on a hamster wheel where the same things keep happening, or despite your best effort, you know, the sense of satisfaction really isn't coming for you. And you are aware of the fact that you don't feel as good about yourself as you really should at this point. And you want that to shift so that you can show up a different way. Those are all pretty good clues. And if, if you, anybody who feels like they're in an endless loop of having to prove themselves, that's a red flag. Maggie, there's two groups of people I'd love to help give advice to from uh, great leaders like yourself. Uh, first group is you, you're just going to graduate from college. You're going to start your professional career journey. And, you, you know, what advice would you give them as they approach getting their first job and starting their professional yeah. career? I think a little bit of the same advice around, uh, you know, get some experience. This doesn't have to be permanent. And when you're young, the way that you figure out what works for you is through experience. You know, you can't fast forward through that process. So, but be observant, you know, don't necessarily just march with orders. Think about, you know, the work that you're doing. What about it energizes you? What about it doesn't energize you? There's always going to be components of life that just aren't that fun that are, we just got to do them, right? So I'm not suggesting every single thing you do at work should be really aligned and light you up. No, but you do want to make sure that you're working from a place of strength. In our workforce environment, we spend way too much time talking about our weaknesses and how to improve those weaknesses. And when you're really young, you may don't really have a sense for that because you're just getting into work that you're doing. So I think paying attention to this feels really easy to me. I can slam it out. I really like it versus here are some things that feel like a really heavy lift and I tend to procrastinate and I don't love it start taking inventory for yourself. You know, what do I love? What comes naturally? What do I not love? When it is time for me to move on from this, how am I going to try to get more of what's really aligned to me and less of what's not? And give yourself that opportunity of self-awareness as you go through the process, knowing that it's temporary, knowing that everything you're learning is going to serve you in the future, even when it's not the best experience, I think is, is important to understand when you're young. Yeah, love that advice. The second group I'd love to help is the uh, kind of, you're now a, a leader, a manager, you have people you're responsible for. So you've gone from a individual contributor um, to leading a team of people. What, what advice uh, would you have uh, for them as they begin their leadership journey? Don't ignore the voice inside your head that is constantly talking to you. You have to know what it's saying. You know, so if you're in a leadership position and that voice in your head still says things like, I don't know if I'm making the right decision. I, what if they think I'm bad at this? What if they don't like me as a leader? You know, I feel overwhelmed. You got to pay attention to that voice. That's the voice that's showing you where the work is. And until you have the awareness and the willingness to look at that and shift what needs to shift for yourself, your effectiveness as a leader is going to be limited. Because, you know, you're going to have from your own self-knowledge journey, the opportunity to be so much more powerful for the people that, that work for you in role modeling, really good, solid behavior around how you're showing up and then knowing what to ask and knowing how to engage when people look like they're not in a great place, because you've done that work, you know what to watch for, you know what to ask, you can have some compassion and be there for them as a person. There's got to be a little bit of, of de-emphasis on 
just straight productivity and making the dollars, which of course is important. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it can't be the only thing that you're thinking about and assessing as a leader. You know, you've got to know who you are as a human, not just as a cog in a wheel. And the people on your team will benefit from that because then you'll be able to be more of whatever they need you to be as that leader. Yeah, that I I don't think I've heard that before in any of the people I've interviewed. So I, I love that take on uh, for that advice for those young leaders. Um, how could people get a hold of you, um, the easiest way to work with you? So I know my name's complicated, but my my name is my website, just MackieMissoni.com. Um, and there's a contact form there. You can, you can send me an email through there and get a hold of me. I'm absolutely love to hear from people. And of course, you know, they can read the book, find it on Amazon, the high achievers guide, musings of a high achievers, my podcast, you could take a listen to that. And, um, you know, every once in a while, when I'm around here locally doing something, I'll share that as well. So if people want to show up for something in person. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Mackie, you're, I love your book. I've read a lot of similar books, but uh, this the transparency, authenticity, and 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 the exercises to do, and what to focus on and what not to focus on. I love it. I can't wait to finish it. So thank you so much for being on the corporate couch today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Have a great day. You too. Mackie was so great to talk to. I mean. She, obviously a brilliant mind. I mean, uh, our, obviously our first guest with, uh, a master's in genetic counseling and she has two patents. So love talking to, you know, smart people. Uh, but what I really loved was she's so smart, but I'm going to say without going back to the other, you know, 50 episodes we've recorded to date that we had the most swear words of any episode <laughs> we've ever had. Uh, the F, even the F bomb was thrown out, but, and, and really what and her book and I, you know, I, I've read whether you call them self-help books or what, you know, whatever you want to call the genre. I mean, her book, what I loved about it, and she's writing for high achievers. I mean, it's the high achievers guide to success or, and uh, is that she throws herself out there. I mean, she went through all the exercises and she's very transparent on, you know, I'll say, you know, the shit that she has to go through. And we, you know, we even talked about therapy and, and all that, but her book is a, just a really, uh, you know, down to earth, showing what she's gone through and how it can help others. And it, you know, it, it, while it's, I think the book's 200 and uh, I'll say, you know, 60 pages, 50 pages. I mean, it, it's not a quick read because you got to do the exercise. You got to mm -hmm. do the work. Yeah. So, but what, what did you think? Joe? Well, you're, you're right about her transparency. And I think that's part of her intelligence is that she is so smart that she can't help but this stuff just sort of keeps coming out of her all all the time. It's um, it was an amazing interview. The thing that struck me on top of on top of her intelligence that kept coming out, the thing that struck me is that the punchline that she had of all of all of all this is that life in general is a spiritual journey. So here she is, probably the most intelligent person that we've interviewed before. But she's talking more about her spiritual journey and the fact that what she is looking for in success in a human being is the person has to be 
just what they are, to be the best version of what you are rather than trying to invent something else. I've always been intrigued by people that are so smart, but still have a spiritual portion of them that uh, that is obviously a, an important thing with them. And, and great use of swear words, I'll say. Yeah, yeah, she did that very well also, if that's... <laughs> That's a talent to be admired, yeah. Joe, what uh, leadership advice would we want to give our great listeners today? We're pivoting a little bit. This is going to be a little different than most of them from before. But we're going to go to that great philosopher named Leonard Bernstein, who said, The most difficult instrument in the orchestra is the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm... That's a problem. But if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.